We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You can go ahead and go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. This is our, our last sermon in 1 Timothy. Um, and then we'll go to 1 John starting next week. Of course, we'll have, uh, we'll have a break whenever Easter comes. Um, this uh, today in 1 Timothy is Paul closing out his letter. Now, Paul, um, of course, sent Timothy there to be the church planner in Ephesus, sent him there and, uh, and wrote this letter as closing remarks or closing advice or sent this letter as basically advice to, to be a pastor. And here what we're looking at is um, the last bit of advice from a mentor down to a, a student, basically. Um, and as I've been looking at it over this week, um, as I've been studying, uh, a few things and I want to say before we get started, and, and then we'll pray. Um, number one, I don't, I don't really have any business teaching this text. I mean, at all. Um, when, I, when I look at this and I look at my life, <clears throat> I just realize that I'm, I'm just an utter failure. I mean, just a complete an utter failure when it comes to walking as a believer. Um, and only because of Christ. But the good news is that only because of Christ and His cross um, and Him applying total righteousness to me, undeserved total righteousness to me, is the only reason that I could even begin to stand here and try to unpack what perseverance of the faith looks like and, and, and hopefully um, draw you in and, and open your eyes to see what it means to persevere. Um, I am, and perhaps you are, very, we lead very, very trivial lives. Um, we, we seem to care about extremely meaningless things. We live very trivial lives that the things that truly are weighty, the things that truly are eternal, the things that truly matter, um, we don't think about those things. Rarely. Do we think about them? And so today, my goal is to try to um, get you to really fight in your walk with Christ. Really fight for your sanctification. This is, I think, the, pers- the perfect sermon to, uh, to take us out of 1 Timothy and go into 1 John. Um, First John's going to flesh out for us really over five chapters what that love really looks like or what that fight for faith really looks like. Um, First John's going to flesh that out um, in real, real tangible ways. First John's going to do that for us. But here, my goal today is to challenge you just to start the fight if you're not starting it. To really examine your life and see if you are actually fighting. Um, And for me, as I studied this text, um, one of my resolutions is beginning this week, triviality in my life has ended. And that's pretty, it's pretty big to say, but that's my goal. Triviality in my life at age 35, if God gives me 40 more years and Jesus doesn't tarry, triviality in my life has ended. I don't want to, at the end of my life, be able to stand before God and tell him meaningless, trivial facts about pointless things, about who won American Idol in 2010 or anything like that. I just don't care anymore about those things. I don't want to be concerned with trivial issues. Um, 
And so I'm hoping that today uh, we'll all be drawn in to take up this fight. And then we'll start next week with First John giving us some good tangible examples over the course of many months of what that might look like in our lives. Let me pray. Father, I count it an extreme privilege to be able to preach your word. And I pray that you would help me and that I would uh, never take for granted this gift that you've given me. And that I'm, as one author says, really standing between two worlds. I'm standing between the eternal world and the temporal world, pleading for souls to put their faith in the eternal. And that this is a weighty, weighty task, one that should never be taken lightly. And so I I have trouble. I just confess, God, that I have a lot of trouble living out this message that I have to preach today in my life. I have a lot of trouble doing it. And so I pray, Lord, as I preach that I would be kept away from hypocrisy. I wouldn't try to show that I have things together that I don't. And that I would be very authentic and very real here. I pray, Lord, that you would help me preach with power by the Spirit and that I would not rely on any of my own thoughts or any of my own words, but Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak through me, that you would do what you promised through your word, take it and change our hearts, that you would take it and put in passions to be different. God, if if no one in this room is taking up, taking up the challenge of, of fighting in the fight of faith, I pray that you would cause me to. If no one else decides that, God, I would, that I would preach this text to myself. God, I pray that you would move me more and more into the image and likeness of Christ this morning. I pray for those here that you would move them more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. We beg and plead for your spirit to come because otherwise this is all for naught. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Timothy 6 um, and we're going to be looking at 11 through 16, verse 21 and 20, 20 and 21. Um, but I want to I want to draw your attention to the middle of 15 and 16 to kind of let this be a starting place for us. Um, I want you I want you with me to see how t- Paul describes Christ and what this could mean in our life. Look at verse 15 B um, and we're going to go through 16 where it says he who he talking about Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign. Jesus Christ is the only one that should be blessed. He is the only one who is sovereign. Sovereign means he is the king. He is in charge. Nothing happens without his command or without him saying it for it to happen. He is the only one who's blessed and the only sovereign. You're not in control. You're not blessed. You are blessed by him if he chooses to do it. But he is the only one who deserves to be blessed. He who is the, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings. We have many kings in this world. They all serve him. The Lord of lords. There are people who are in charge of a lot of things in this world. They all are subservient to Christ. No one rules over him. No one. 
He's in charge of everything from beginning to end. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Just consider how how huge he is, how eternal he is, how vast he is. He he dwells in unapproachable light. This is our this is our Christ. This is our God whom no one has ever seen or can see. Yes, we've seen him in human form. But if we were, were to, as Moses, try to look upon him in all of his fullness, we would die. We've never seen him fully and can't. The. The, the created. Cannot really look on the eternal. It's impossible. It would consume us and kill us. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Eternal dominion. Amen. Now, here's what what's, 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 um, should be drawing us in. If these things are true, if these things are true, and this, this man, Christ, or this God truly exists, and these things are actually true about him, then as we consider his words today, we should really take heed and tread lightly. And we should really consider our lives. If we, if we really think that these things about Christ are true, then we should listen carefully. We should humble ourselves in front of this man. And we should start preparing our hearts right now before I even go to verse 11 to repent. Because there's a lot of repentance that needs to happen. Whenever we look at these things that, that Paul is going to tell us, these pieces of advice on the way our lives should look, we should already start considering that we are nowhere near where we should be and that we have a lot of repentance to do. Don't be hard-hearted to this. Don't say, I have no repentance. Don't say, maybe I have just a couple things to repent. I have and you have a lot to be able to start repenting for. This is Paul telling Timothy, closing words of advice. Um, And if you look here at verse 12, Paul tells Timothy in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. This is what Paul is going to tell this young pastor who's probably 30 years old. Um, Verse 12 is not just for pastors. I I want you to know that. Verse 12 is for you as well. Every one of you, if you're a Christian, should be. Fighting the good fight of faith. Now, here's what's interesting. If you flip over one page to 2 Timothy, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to see something. I want you to see something. Paul in 2 Timothy is at the end of his life. He wrote 1 Timothy, you know, knowing he wasn't going to die immediately. He he writes 2 Timothy knowing he is about to die imminently. Death is coming. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7... Paul, now remember in in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he tells Timothy, Timothy, you need to fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul looks at his own life and he says about himself, I have fought the good fight of faith. So there's very similar words, very similar language as what he's telling Timothy. And at the end of his life, as he considers his life, this is what I've done. Now, this is interesting. Look what all Paul equates to fighting the good fight of faith. Look at 4, 7. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. 
So fighting the good fight of faith is not a secondary temporal issue. It's not something that we can consider optional. It's absolutely necessary that we fight the good fight of faith. Paul is not telling Timothy this is, hey, maybe as a pastor, you should try this. It might be good because we look at Second Timothy four, seven. He says, I fought the good fight of faith. I've kept the faith, which means fighting the good fight of faith is deeper than some kind of secondary thing. It's weightier than we might think. It's an internal issue. Fighting the good fight of faith means staying saved. Staying saved. And I'm saying that intentionally. As one who holds to perseverance of the faith, that we cannot lose our salvation. As one who holds to once saved, always saved. The fight, fighting the good fight of faith is so crucial that if you don't, you will not stay saved. I'm going to unpack that soon. But I want you to know what I'm saying. Um, Because... A lot of times when, when we talk about perseverance of the faith, especially if you hold to the Reformed tradition, one who loves the doctrines of grace or whatever, um, we so emphasize God's part in it. We so emphasize sanctification that we really and sadly minimize our part in it. We have a huge part in sanctification. We can't just say, well, God's in control. He's sovereign. If he's promised me, if he's justified me, then he's going to sanctify me. So whatever, he's going to do it. Um, I think we're missing our part big time. So I want to throw up a couple verses on the screen here for you before we go in so that every reformed person in the room is realizing you have huge responsibilities in your fight for faith. All right. First Corinthians 15, 10 says this. First Corinthians 15 says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he doesn't say God worked it all out. So I get saved. God made it. So I'm going to be sanctified. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So clearly Paul is leaning on sovereignty. He's saying, absolutely. God is going to sanctify me. It's without a question at the end of my life when I finally get to heaven and I say, wow, I have grown in holiness. It's not me, but God's done it. But he doesn't say he also well, he doesn't say God does the whole thing is I worked harder. You, you need to absolutely know this, that it is your job. It is your responsibility to work on your sanctification. Look at this other verse, basically saying the same thing. Philippians 2 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's telling you to do it. You have to pursue your sanctification. Don't just say God's going to do it, whatever. I'm going to put it on cruise control and just let him do the whole thing. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, he follows it up with saying, yes, God's sovereign. If you are saved, you will stay saved. God will be the be the person that causes that to happen. But reformed guys lean so much on that that they rarely consider their responsibility. So don't do that. And so when we look at texts like this, when he says, flee, pursue, fight, he's talking to you. He's not saying God's going to do these things. He's telling you. 
to flee, pursue, fight. So I want you to just take your mind out of your theology and just approach this text without without any presuppositions. Just come to this text with me and let's just look at what the Bible tells you to do. All right. I believe, yes, that God's sovereignty is going to sanctify those who he's justified. But let's not approach it that way today. All right. But we will. Because that's how Paul tells us to do it. All right. Um, one other thing I want us to kind of consider. Um, Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I've kept the faith. Um, and I want to just, and perhaps you've never read this. I've read this a lot of times, but perhaps you've never read this. If you maybe aren't a student of the word. Um, I want to read to you what Paul talks about in second Corinthians when he looks at his life, when he, when he talks about, I fought the good fight. I want you to hear what his good fight looks like. And I want you to measure it beside your, your life right now. This is what his good fight of faith looks like. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, not once have I ever been beaten. Not once. Not once. And often near death. I've never been near death because I'm a Christian. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times. It was their belief that 40 was a perfect number. So if they whipped you 40 times, they believed it would kill you. Because it was the perfect number. So they always did 40 lashes minus one. They wanted, their idea was to beat you to the point of death. In their mind, they literally thought they, they thought they had done that. So they whipped you 39 times. Five times he received that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is his good fight. What is your good fight? What's your good fight? Try not to do too much Twitter and Facebook. Is your, is your good fight um, to just, I got to stop lusting. I just lust so much. Is that your good fight? Is maybe your good fight finally getting the courage for the very first time to tell your coworker about Jesus? I mean, this was his good fight. How do we measure up? Um, is your good fight... Finally, to stop spending all your money on all your toys and maybe start giving God his money. I'm not trying to minimize your struggles. I'm just trying to submit that perhaps we could start walking a little bit deeper. We could start challenging ourselves a little bit more and and look at what biblical first century Christianity really looked like when it meant to fight the good fight of faith. Um, I think that we are so utterly out of touch what it means to be a fighting Christian that whenever we go feed a homeless person or go to a prison and visit someone that we don't realize that to be a Christian in the first century, it meant to be homeless. It meant to be in prison. And we pat ourselves on the back. I'm not saying go be homeless and I'm not saying go be Christian or go be in prison. I'm just wondering if perhaps and I'm not trying to minimize your struggles, if perhaps we're missing a lot. Maybe we're just missing a lot about what it means to fight the good fight of faith. 
And perhaps yours won't look like Paul. I'm not saying it will. You won't be probably and I probably will not be persecuted to the same level as Paul. Unless you leave this country. And maybe God's calling you to the 1040 window. But if he's not, maybe your life could look different. And could we pull ourselves out of a a slumber that we're in and make our fight a little bit more about um, not fighting social networking and toys, but really thinking about what it might mean to suffer for Christ. So verse 11 says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee. Now, Paul's calling Timothy man of God. And, and I'm wondering, just from the very, very beginning here, um, could you even be called this? Would he call you a man of God? Or a woman of God? It's a pretty big title. Um, best I understand, this is the only time in the Bible that someone's called man of God. So I wonder if this is where you are, if you could even be called this. Flee these things. Now, what are these things? Now, these things in context is what we talked about last week, which is the love of money. We just looked at that in verses um, 3 through 10. Um, In 3 through 10, he told us that we need to um, flee, basically, he's telling us, flee this love of money. Now, skip down to 20, because he's going to use very similar language to flee. He's going to use the word avoid. Look what he says in 20. Um, 20b, I should say, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So um, in 11 and in 20, he's going to use very similar verbs. Flee, avoid, run, get away, charge away from these things. Um, In context, he's specifically going to say, flee the love of money, flee babbling or gossip, flee False doctrine, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So this is this is five or or these are closing sage words of advice for holiness from a mentor. Um, Closing sage words of advice for holiness from a mentor. This is Paul to Timothy. And the first thing he's telling him is to flee and avoid sin. And I'm just going to say sin instead of the love of money and gossip. Because those are particular things he's addressing, but those are both sin. So he's, he's saying flee sin and bad doctrine. You should flee sin and bad doctrine. This is one of the first things that we should do. Um, in context, we should stop living at higher income levels than what we, what we have. I mean, he's talking about money. Stop living at high. If you only have $5, you should not try to spend 10 that doesn't work because you have to put the other five on credit and then they charge you 20% interest. And that's just not intelligent. That's not the way you do it. Um, you should flee your, free yourself from financial slavery and actively plan, actively plan two huge words that are being put in juxtaposition together, putting together, actively Plan how you can spend God's money on ministry. That's context. But um, I want to take it a little broader. Is really, these are sins. Flee, flee from gossip, babbling or gossip. Flee from love of money. And what is it that you need to flee from? 
What sin do you need to flee? There's sin in your life that you are so comfortable with that if you actually would confess it and someone would come beside you and say, you need to flee that. You need to you need to run away from that. You probably wouldn't. Just like me. Man, we love sin so much. What is it in your life? Is it lust? Is it um, gossip? Is it money? Maybe it's food. Uh, I don't know. But you, sh- you should flee from it. You also should flee bad doctrine. That's what he says in, in 20. Um, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He's talking about, for, <clears throat> for by it some have swerved from the faith. This is causing bad doctrine. You should not find yourself um, involved in or entranced by bad doctrine. You should know your word enough that if somebody tries to teach you liberation theology or whatever, I mean, there's all kinds of um, bad doctrines out there that if they try to change the gospel in any way, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be swayed by it. Prosperity gospel, whatever. Um, now, here's, here's one problem that I see. I, I, I see because I'm going to keep hammering you reform guys. Um, if you are reformed, when we just talked about this, you probably heard the flea bad doctrine part, patted yourself on the back and said, check, I got number one. And didn't even maybe consider that you should be fleeing from sin and perhaps it's pride because you don't think you might have any. You're just, oh, bad doctrine, got that one. Oh, wait, I should also think about the sin part. Flee sin. Flee sin. I don't know what your sin is. Even if it's just self-pity. Flee it. Make war on it. Run. Now, Paul isn't just going to tell us to walk away from sin. If we just if we just walk away from sin and walk over to neutrality, sit on our couch and just veg out for the rest of our lives, that's that's not what he's telling us. That's not what he wants us to do. He wants us to, as he says, flee these things or avoid these things. But the next sentence is um, pursue. So we're going to walk away from sin, but we're also going to walk to something. We always do that as Christians. When we walk away from sin, we always walk to Jesus. We walk towards something. We don't walk towards neutrality. God is not interested in your neutrality. Look what he says. Um, And this is our next piece of advice. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the things that we are to pursue. So as we flee from sin, we, we run or we pursue Christ. You need to go to great lengths to be holy. Go to great lengths. Paul, in this, when he's telling you to flee and pursue, these verbs are very strong. And um, what he wants you to know is holiness is absolutely imperative in your life. Do absolutely everything you can to cause it to happen. And then know at the end when it happens, God did it. So pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith. Um, and that's the faith. Pursue love. Pursue love. What would it look like if you pursued love? And we're not talking about some kind of romantic Hollywood love. You know, we're not talking about a chick flick here. What would it look like for you to pursue love? God is love. First John 4. 
What would it look like for you to pursue this? What would your association with your fellow man, your fellow woman, what would it look like if you pursued love? Husbands, what would it look like if you pursued love with your wife? How much more would you serve her? How much more would you serve your annoying roommate who turns the lights on at 3 a.m. if you pursued love? How much more for those who um, seem to be the down and out, the unattractive, the the outskirts of society? Um, perhaps there's people that you just find annoying even in the room. What would it look like if you pursued love? Maybe you wouldn't hang around the same people. Every week. Maybe you wouldn't just talk to the same four people that you know. But you would get to know more people. You would go take them out to dinner. You would have them over to your house. You would start doing real fellowship with people. Pursue steadfastness. You know, one of my favorite people to be around. One of my favorite people to, to work with. Um, in, any, in any regard. Um, spiritually. Um, here at the church. Anywhere, doing anything. One of my favorite people to work with are people who are dependable. People who are steadfast. People you can count on. People that you, if you know, if you, if you ask them to do something or you ask them to be there, or if, if you say, hey, come help me move or whatever, they say yes. Aren't those like really the best people to be around? And the people that are always kind of halfway there, that if maybe they'll come help you, maybe they'll come serve you unless something better comes along. Those people are not very fun to be around. I just don't enjoy it. Pursue steadfastness. Pursue dependability. Pursue always being there whenever you're supposed to be. What would your life look like? Maybe you are one of those kinds of people, but maybe you're not. Pursue it. This is the second piece of advice, is that we would pursue these things. That we would not just let our intentions drive us. You know, honestly... If you intend to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, da, 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 da. If you intend to pursue that, but you don't, that doesn't mean anything. Intentions don't mean anything. Um, if you intend to do it, but don't do it, you don't intend to do it. You really don't. I don't you, can, you can swear to me to your blue in the face that you intend to do it. If you don't do it, you really don't intend to. So we're not talking about intentions. We're talking about actual follow through. Execution is actually what matters. Doing it is what matters. Following through with local missions. Not just intending one day that you're going to start doing local missions in the community. Following through and doing it. You know, if we were to take a, a survey in the church, which is from the day, I mean, from the very first day, we've talked about how we want to do local missions, local missions, local missions. I mean, we named ourselves Remedy because we want to do local missions. We want to be a remedy to the city, meeting physical needs, serving, etc. And as we do that, we'll tell them about Christ. If we were to take a survey of how many people who've done it once per month, which is our goal, um, I think we would all be pretty surprised. Intentions on serving don't mean anything. Follow through is what means something. So follow through in local missions. Follow through in reading your Bible. Follow through in prayer. Follow through in your church attendance. Follow through in your giving. Follow through in your 
attending your community groups, follow through and actually doing real accountability. I I don't want to hear about intentions. God's not concerned in your intentions. God's concerned that you're doing it. And perhaps, perhaps, like me, as you look at this, you think to yourself, maybe I'm doing the opposite. Maybe I'm fleeing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and I'm pursuing sin. Maybe that's your life. Um, and it might not be as pronounced or as to a large degree as I'm saying, but there are probably places, just like I, I've seen over this past week, there are places where I seem to be doing the opposite of what the Bible's commanded me to do. So that's the second one. Now, we're going to get to this third one. And this third one's pretty um, pretty intense, as I said, because it doesn't just mean um, an optional secondary issue. Perhaps you should be fighting. Perhaps you shouldn't. As we saw in 2 Timothy 4, 7, for those who are fighting the good faith are the ones who have kept the faith. So if we're not fighting the good faith, then we have not kept the faith and we will not stay saved. It says, fight the good fight of faith. All these points are just so textual. I mean, it's just obvious. Here's the third piece of advice that we should fight the good fight of faith. Now, one thing I want you to know is that this is not an exhortation from Paul to begin fighting the good fight of faith. It's assuming that he already has been and that he will continue to fight the good fight of faith. You need to know that that's what that verb means. It means that I'm assuming that it's already started since you're a Christian and that you're going to continue into the very end of your life. I'm not assuming that when I say this, you're going to say, oh, okay, I'll start that now. Let me put it on my calendar. Um, Getting that Monday, 8 a.m. I'm going to set my alarm for that so I remember. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this should already be happening as a Christian. You should be fighting Fighting. Think about the language he's saying. Fighting. John Piper has a quote where he says, you don't know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. I'm not going to talk about it rhymes. I'm not going to talk about the prayer part as much as um, the second part was that life is war. Are, Are you aware of this? That your life is war. Every day you are walking around and the devil is like a a lion ready to devour you at every single moment. Right when you open your eyes, he is ready to destroy you. You're in a fight. You're in a war. And so there's a couple things. Um, First of all, this war is for your soul, and you should be fighting. Second, you should be fighting every single day. What are you fighting? Because it says fight. You need to know what or who or, or what it is that you should be fighting after. You're fighting after Satan, You're fighting after sin and you're fighting after your own flesh. All are attacking you at every single moment. And so there is no there is no time to just find yourself vegging out. There is no time to just say, you know, I've worked a hard day all day today. So for the last four hours of my life, I don't want my last four hours of my of my day. I don't want to think I just want to flip on the, the TV and just veg out and just not have to think that's I've been thinking all day. So I'm not going to think anymore. Well, good job. You know what you just did? You let the lion come in and devour you the last four hours of your day. You have put down all guards. You have said, I'm not going to fight right now. 
And I just don't see that this is an option. It's not like once we walk into our house, some kind of magic force field comes up on us and we don't need to fight anymore. Once we sit down on our protective couch, we're good now. We should be fighting every day, every moment, as our eyes are awake. Fighting the good fight of faith. Because if we don't, we are not keeping the faith. If we do not fight, or Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy um, 1... 18, at the very end of 118, he says, wage the good warfare. Similar language to fight the good fight of faith. Wage the good warfare in 118. Fight the good fight of faith in five, whatever this is, six, whatever this is, 12. Um, And so just as when I read and we went through six months ago, (laughs) um, chapter one, verse 18, I showed you some verses um, that talk about our responsibility and fighting against sanctification. I want, to, I want to show these to you again. It was six months ago, and I think it's really good to put these verses in front of you. Because as I said, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, um, a lot of us think that this, this fight of faith or this sanctification, um, once God's justifies, we're good. I've been justified. I asked Jesus in my heart, so whew, I'm fine. Don't have to do anything. I can slack off. I can take, I can take a whole month off because God's going to save me. Um, I want to put these verses in front of you. And... It's important that you know that there's verses absolutely that talk about God saving you and that God is going to bring to completion. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work will carry it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. If he justifies you, he absolutely will sanctify you. And whenever you're in sin and you confess your sin and you're feeling down, you can hold on to Philippians 1, 6 and you say, praise God that you will bring it to completion. I will be saved. However, I have to. I have to put these other verses in front of you to know that if you think everything's fine, you're, you're missing it. Four verses. They're all going to say the same thing, and I want you to see all four of them. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. And look at this. By which you are being saved. Notice the tense of the verb. You are being saved. It's happening right now. But look what he says right after that. If you hold fast. So there's a sense in which he's saying, if you don't hold fast, you will stop being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Next one. Second Timothy two eleven. This trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. Are you hearing that I'm trying to really push back on your responsibility? Stop leaning so heavenly on God's part in your sanctification. I know that. I'm aware. I've read systematic. I know how it works. However, systematic also says, and the Bible says, it's your responsibility also in sanctification. You have to do work. You have to flee. You have to pursue. You have to fight. Next one. Colossians, this is one twenty-two. Um, it says, He has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Beautiful. God has declared me completely and 100% forgiven. Oh, wait. If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue. Which means, if you don't continue, He will not present you Holy, blameless. And don't miss this again. I'm going to say it. 
This is coming from a guy that holds to once saved, always saved. But you need to know these verses. Are you just going to get lazy in your faith? If you if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Next one, Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. That means in our walk, we have to go to the end if we want to be saved. We have to fight the good fight of faith. It's assuming that we should already be doing it and that we're going to do it for the rest of our life. Not that one day. It's not that, oh, you know, I I asked Jesus in my heart, so once I get in college, I'll start that. Or once I'm out of college and I'm married, I'll do that. Or, you know, once I'm married and I have children, I'll do that. Or once I'm 50, I'll start that. Whenever I can get my life serious. Or once I get that job. Or once I have that girl. Or once I have... Don't count on stuff like that, man. That stuff's not for sure. You have no idea. You have no idea. Life is short and your life is temporal and fragile. Don't put it off. Now look at this one. This next one's pretty interesting. Fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you... You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He tells him to take hold of the eternal life. Take hold. Um, And as I studied what this take hold of the eternal life meant, um, what he's saying is, there's a sense, and we, we, we know it all throughout Scripture, there's this already not yet. There's this already not yet. You've already, as Ephesians 1.20 says, been seated in the heavenlies. You've already been seated in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 1. Did you know that? Ephesians 1.20 says, You have already been seated in the heavenly places. You're not, No, I'm not. I'm seated here at 249 East Main. So it's an already not yet. And the Bible draws these kind of mysteries all the time. And so Paul's telling us to take hold of the eternal life. In other words, reminding, remind yourself continually all the time that... The eternal life to come is your real home. The eternal life to come is your real home, not where you live now. Take hold of the eternal life. Let me read you a verse from 1 John. Um, this, is, this is 1 John 2. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right, so um, I'm supposed to take hold of the eternal life. That's really my real home, not this. So if I take hold of this world, the love of the Father's not in me. But if I continually take hold of that world, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So if you are holding on to this world, then it says, the love of the Father's not in you. So this taking hold of the eternal life is constantly reminding yourselves, I'm seated in the heavenly places right now, reminding myself that that's my home, not here. And constantly reminding yourself of this causes you to live differently. I mean, honestly, let's just let's just think about it this way. If it were possible that we all had this gift that John had in Revelation where we could see the end, see Jesus like in all of his glory, if we could go to heaven and 
catch a glimpse as like Isaiah six. There he is seated. If we could see that and know that that is my eternal destination forever. And then somehow like have to come back here and live the rest of our life. I think that we would live much differently. I think that the way we spend our money would be much differently. I think that the courage to have that hard conversation with that person that's not a believer at your work would probably happen much faster. I think that you would think about that a lot and you would say, I'm going to take hold of the eternal life. I'm going to remind myself that that's my home, not here. I'm going to live for that day and not this day. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life. Consider that that's your day, not this day. <clears throat> Look what he says here. Um, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. And then he tells him, this is really interesting language. Um, Keep the commandment. Unstained and free from reproach. Now, um, I've heard people preach this as what he's telling you is to keep the commandments. That you're just supposed to look back at the Old Testament law and keep those commandments. Um, And I I looked a little bit more and uh, it's not necessarily saying that. Uh, I looked at Calvin and Calvin says that there's no doubt. Calvin's always very, very like, Final. There's no doubt that this is what he means. I love it because it helps me maybe try to make a decision. Um, but I think he's right here. And he wasn't the only one that said it. There were some other commentators that said it. Um, but I did listen to sermons that say keep the commandments and just keep commandments. Law keep. Um, but this is what he says. When he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the um, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He says that he should show himself to be a faithful minister to Christ and to the church. That there was a a commandment or a calling given to Timothy as a pastor that he is supposed to keep. He is to to remain as this faithful minister of Christ, keeping in his calling. Keep that commandment, keep that calling that he got, this command from God to be a faithful minister is what he says. Um, And so... Calvin says he's no doubt referring to the ministry of Timothy, that he's supposed to keep um, keep that ministry going. All right. So I believe he's right. Now, what I want you to do is to jump down to 20 with me um, and look what Paul tells him here. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So we already think, all right, keep the commandment means keep that calling set as a minister. Not keep the commandments like law keep. 20. Guard the deposit. Deposit. Para thecane. Deposit. Para thecane. So I looked it up. Deposit means a trust consigned to one's faithful keeping. This deposit is a trust consigned or given, um, put in charge of. You are now in charge of this. A trust consigned to one's faithful keeping. Um, the deposit is the gospel. Timothy has been entrusted to, to keep this gospel, to guard the gospel. So 
I'm putting this all as one, as this fifth piece of device. The fifth one is keep, guard, the, guard the deposit. Um, oh, that's not right. Guard the eternal life. I don't know what that means. That's not what I'm supposed to say. I didn't, I didn't type that right. So it doesn't, it's not guard. It's guard the gospel and keep the commandment. Guard the gospel, keep the commandment. Um, I just didn't know how to type that fifth one. Guard the gospel and keep the commandment. Guard the gospel and keep the commandment. That's the fifth thing that he's telling him. And what he's saying, um, first of all, let's think about this. um, Because this is Paul talking to Timothy. We need to understand what it means in context first. Before we try to understand what it means for us. Um, The deposit is the gospel. And Timothy is to guard this gospel. He is to faithfully keep this gospel safe. All right? So what does it mean for a preacher, pastor, to do this? What does it mean for Timothy to do this? Um, And then once we know that, what does it mean for you to do this? So let's think about what it means for Timothy. For Timothy to guard the gospel, to keep the commandment, to stay faithful to that calling of ministry. Um, The gospel doesn't belong to Timothy. The gospel belongs to God. So as a preacher, as a pastor, Timothy is to proclaim the pure gospel because he's going to have to give an account for this. That's what it means to guard it. It means to proclaim the pure gospel. Never, ever try to water it down. Never try to change it. Never try to make it more palatable for an audience. Tell people the gospel, the pure gospel. Guard it. So if that's what it means for Timothy, this is what it means for you. Your salvation is not your work, but it's God's. Therefore, you will give an account of the gospel that you have also been entrusted with, that has been deposited into your life. You will have to give an account for it. So you must proclaim this gospel that you've been entrusted with. Guarding the gospel in your life means proclaiming this gospel to other people. So when you guard it, you are to proclaim this pure gospel. You're not to water down this message. You're not to make it more palatable. You will be, as you tell people, the Bible is clear. You will be either the aroma of life or the aroma of death. It's just the way it is. The gospel itself is the aroma of life to those who will live, the aroma of death to those who are perishing. So don't try to change it. You have been told to guard it. So this is what you should do. Now, um... At my house, we just moved to this house and there was a fridge there waiting on us. Um, And at first we thought this fridge was great. um, But now I have absolutely come to hate with a deep abiding passion my freezer. It it drives me insane. Um, And here's why. Every once in a while it decides to do this this really loud like... And you think, okay, that's not a big deal. It is tremendously, tremendously annoying. Um, Anything that's going on, literally, if I'm standing in the kitchen, I almost have to yell to Christy to talk to her. And it doesn't do it all the time. So that's the trick. Um, Every three days, it'll come on, and it's so loud. It's honestly, I feel like someone's running like a weed eater in my kitchen. It is so ridiculously loud, this big, huge, deep, annoying, I want to throw that thing in the yard, freezer this, this this roar that it has um but here's what happens I, I complain i get mad i i sometimes 
I'm just going to confess. I open up the freezer door. I grab the back where, and I just jerk the thing off, and I'm just shaking it all around. I get extremely, until my hand is so cold, I can't move it. Um, and so I just get real mad. I slam the door, and I just walk it upstairs. I walk to another room, and I'm, I'm angry. I mean, it just drives me insane. And I finally come back, and it's gone, and I'm okay. Um, and honestly, I forget. I forget about how annoying it is. And so you know what I do? Nothing. I do nothing until it comes on again. And all I do when it comes on again is I get mad. That's it. Um, some of you in your approach to life, your, your approach to, your, to Christ is this way. Only when something is wrong do you think about it. Only when something is wrong do you think about it. Um, only whenever it's right there in your face, annoying in your ear, do you try to do something and then somehow it, it'll go away and you're like, oh, my Christian life's good. I'm going to go over here and veg out again. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm only when something's going on, when there's a crisis of my faith or whenever there's destruction or when my marriage is bad or whenever I'm failing a class, that's whenever I'm all of a sudden, oh, I got to think about this Jesus thing and get it all straight. And I, I'm going to get all mad and try to do stuff. Oh, the crisis is gone. Oh, Jesus must be fine with me. I'm going to be fine. Uh, So I'm fine. And yeah, Jesus is fine. But that doesn't mean you stop fighting. That doesn't mean your Christian walk is over. It doesn't mean you approach your my like I approach my freezer like that. As soon as the thing's over, I forget. Don't do that in your walk with Christ. Don't do that. You press in, you fight, you pursue, you flee sin when good times are good and when times are bad. All the time. All the time you were trying to take hold of the eternal life. All the time you were guarding the gospel. You're looking actively for opportunities to share. You're not just waiting until some unbeliever magically walks up to you and says, Oh, could you please tell me how to be a Christian? Because that doesn't happen very often. It, it doesn't happen that they just come up to you and say, You know, I've watched your life over the past two months and I don't know Christ and you must. Um, you're so holy. So would you, would you please tell me how I can become a Christian? Anybody? Not me. Actively looking for places to share the faith. People that don't believe in Christ don't usually do that. The reason why is eternity is really at stake here. The fact that you would really keep the faith is at stake here. If you don't do these things, at the end, you might not have kept the faith. It scares me. Which is why, for me, triviality has ended. I just don't see how triviality plays any role in our lives. I just don't understand how we can find ourselves enamored with the things of this world for the love of the Father is not in us. Every day we should flee sin. Every day we should pursue righteousness, faith, love. Every day we should fight the good fight, good fight of faith. Every day we should think on eternal things. Every day we should guard the gospel and tell people. Why? I'm going to close with the same verses I opened with. Look what it says in 15. This is why. He is who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings 
and the Lord of Lords. If that's true, if that is true, we all have some repentance to do. Really have repentance to do. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.